We are going to be studying victims or victors, and in the days ahead, we're going to find out which one we are. Scripture tells us in Romans 8.37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I believe that to be true. I believe if you're here this evening as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are greater than the great conquerors of history. Because through Christ you have conquered Satan, sin, and death, the greatest enemies of mankind. But that's our position in Christ. That's the place where God put us in union with Christ. But the question is, how much does our practice reflect our position? Are we really demonstrating actively and consistently in our life that we are more than conquerors and that we are victors? You know, victors and victims are different. Victors fall down, but they rise back up. Victims fall down and they stay down. Victors fail and they make amends. Victims fail and they make excuses. Victors never stop striving and victims never stop complaining. We're going to be looking at the difference in these two attitudes because it's really the only two paths that lay before us every day of our lives. And we're going to look at them from the life of David. And I would have you turn to Psalm 15. We're going to read that in just a moment. And we're going to, with each of our classes, and by the way, I've got seven sessions and I've got eight classes. So you know we're already in trouble. And I know I'm in trouble because I have so much information for each class that I can't possibly even get through it. That's why you have 22 pages of notes in your hand. And I do hope that you'll take advantage of them because some of these things I'm going to have to brush over very lightly. And you have scriptures that you can look up and do study on your own. And I hope that you'll do that. Here's what we're going to be studying. Eight qualities of the character of Christ. When we talk about character and character is the issue, I said earlier, revival alone cannot save America. It's going to take the ideal and the pursuit of character among God's people to make a real difference. That's how we have an impact on the world. It's great to enter Christ through, by God's grace through faith. It's wonderful to know the position that we have seated with him in the heavenly places. That's all well and good. It's nice to sing about a mansion over the hilltop, to know that we have eternal life. That's all wonderful. But none of that impacts history. What impacts history is when it begins to affect our life. When our life becomes a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ, that's when we're going to have an impact. And my friends, we are going to need it in the days ahead like we have never, ever needed it. We're going to see things in the days ahead that I believe we never imagined were going to come. We're looking at, as one expert put it, a perfect storm on top of a perfect storm on top of a perfect storm. Economically, militarily, and as far as the supply lines, we're looking at uh, difficult and dangerous times ahead. Keep singing that song, Hearts Courageous. It'll carry you through. But here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at selfless service. Selfless, sacrificial service. If you want to ask yourself, 
Am I a victor? This is where you need to begin. How much do I give up what I want for the blessing of someone else? How much am I willing just in the little daily things of life? You know, we've introduced all over the world the idea that when we sit down to a feast, the ladies go first. Other countries have never thought of that concept. Children go first. I've been in countries where the men eat all the food, the women eat the scraps, and the kids go hungry. That's their mentality. How much am I willing to give up for the blessing of others? Secondly, humility. Humility and meekness. Humility is the attitude. Meekness is the outward expression of it. And we're going to be studying humility. Third, we're going to look at courage. You know, it's easy to talk brave until we end up in a foxhole. Do we have genuine courage? Fourth, loyalty. Loyalty is one of the great things lacking in our world today. Loyalty among husbands and wives, loyalty among friends, loyalty among church members. And you know, sometimes the greatest loyalty that you and I can express is just to keep our mouth shut. Sometimes just that little word that we speak about someone else plants in the mind of another person this person is not worth getting to know, this person not worth being a friend to, and it's all because of that little split tongue of the serpent that comes out and says, oh, well, you know, so-and-so they do this, or whatever it may be. Loyalty, be loyal. Fifth, wisdom. We're gonna see a great example of wisdom. I wanna hit the high points, because we're hitting a contrast with each of these. And I don't wanna dwell a whole lot on the negatives, what I want to dwell on are the positives, but we have to be able to see the contrast. Sixth, faithfulness goes along with loyalty, being faithful. You know, when you give your word and to keep your word is going to hurt. Scripture says, blessed is the man who vows to his own hurt and keeps his word. To tell someone, I'll be there. You better be there. I'll do this. We need to be faithful. Seventh, gratitude. A good gauge of where we are in our spiritual maturity is how thankful we are. How often do we give thanks? How often do we exude to other people the fact that we are thankful and that we are blessed? Gratitude. Gratitude can change your life. And then eighth, objectivity. Objectivity is the ability to see reality as it is. The danger for all of us is that we look at the world around us, we look at people around us, uh, we look at world events, and oftentimes we filter those things through a preconceived idea. Uh, we are in great danger from this right now because we have a whole generation of people who have been raised on subjectivity, who have been raised on a victim mentality, and it's never their fault. It's always someone else's fault. They couldn't help it. It wasn't really their mistake, and on and on and on down the line. But everything they see is filtered through that victim mentality, and therefore it's impossible for them to perceive reality. You can put the facts right in front of them. You can show them history, you can show them what's actually going on in the world and they can't even see it, why? Because everything's subjective. We wanna be objective. We're gonna begin in Psalm 15 because uh, I would like to look at each of these through the eyes of David in the Psalms 
And as we see these qualities reflected in the Psalms, it tells us something about David. It tells us that these things were often on his mind. I can't possibly take you to all of the different references in the Psalms. But as you begin to look up some of these words, you begin to realize that David thought long and hard. He thought very deeply about these very issues. He was very concerned with character. And character is what we'll see as we look through Psalm 15. As a matter of fact, the heading on my psalm in the scripture is the character of those who may dwell with the Lord. A psalm of David, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against a friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That was the point that I was just making. Your word is your bond. <laughs> he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be moved. What a promise. What an astounding promise. And we're going to look at a contrast in our first class here, and really we're getting close to the end of it. Samuel, a profile of selfless service. And I'll probably only have time to deal with the Samuel side of it. But you know, as often happens to pastors, to evangelists, to missionaries, they devote their whole lives to the word of God, to the sharing of the gospel, to the teaching of people, to the raising up of saints to the point of spiritual maturity. And then their kids walk away from the word, walk away from the ministry, walk away from the church. They get out there in the world and their lives are just wasted. We've all seen it. We've all experienced it. Samuel is one of the purest, finest examples of a true man of character that you can find in the Old Testament and his sons were worthless. And you ask yourself, how can this happen? And the only answer I can give you is the words of Jesus when he said, a prophet is not without honor, except where? In his own home. And why is that? Well, because those who live close to us see that we also have flaws. They see that we've got feet of clay. They see that we stumble and fall. Uh, they see the weaknesses, they see the failings. And therefore, it's very easy to say, well, he preaches this, but he does this. I'm sure my kids could probably say a lot of things along that line. There's one thing I would encourage each of you to understand, especially those of you who are here with your pastor, or if you go back home to your pastor, you must understand something. This book is perfect. It's a perfect book. We're not. But this is our ideal. This is the goal that we are striving to. And one thing that you'll learn about victors is victors lead, victims can't even follow. Victors know where they're going. They're not at the end of the destination yet, but they know the goal that they're aiming for. And therefore, as we open the scripture and we preach to you, we're speaking much more to ourselves. And I'm sure that every pastor in this room would agree with me that so many times as we're teaching the word, God the Holy Spirit brings conviction on us and we almost feel like we need to just stop for a minute and 
pray a little prayer, confess a little bit of sin, and get ourselves back together. If you want a perfect pastor, good luck. You're not going to find him. They don't exist. But here's the difference. We are always pressing on to the goal. We will never stop. We will never give up. We will never get sidetracked. We are aiming for the character that will reflect the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see that in Samuel. If you'll just open with me uh, in your Bible to 1 Samuel. Uh, I'm not going to cover everything that we could cover. Obviously, there's too much. You have in your notes there on page 3, Samuel's early life. You can read about it in chapters 1 through 3. He was a miracle child to the prayers of his mother, Hannah. He was dedicated to the Lord. He was one of three lifetime Nazarites that we read of in the Bible. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Many people never stop and realize that John the Baptist was also a Nazarite. By the way, when you were a Nazarite for life, you never cut your hair, which means that some of these guys would have probably had hair down to their ankles. Uh, I've read in uh, many of the studies of uh, archaeologists and Bible scholars how the Nazarites were usually scorned by their own people. They were laughed at, they were mocked. As they walked down the street, the people would laugh at them, sometimes even throw objects at them because they were weird. They were separated to God. And that's the man that Samuel was. Samuel gave his first prophecy as a child in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. Again, I'm not going to take the time to turn to it. Uh, he made a prophecy that Eli was going to be judged by God because of the disobedience of his children. His children were absolutely rotten. And the thing that's most interesting about this prophecy that came from a young child is the same thing happened to his sons, and then the same thing happened to the king he anointed, King David, whose sons ended up rotten. How could you be a child of the greatest king that ever walked the earth next to the Lord Jesus Christ? A man who was a man after God's heart, a man who was a living example of his heart panting for God as the deer pants for the desert brooks. And then you shrug your shoulders and say, oh, that's nice. I think I'll go out and live my life. But that happens so often. Samuel's greatest contribution was his devoted prayer life. If you just turn with me to 1 Samuel 12, we'll just pick up a little on his life. This, is, this happened at uh, Saul's coronation, and we'll be touching on that tomorrow, but Samuel calls the people to testify. 1 Samuel 12, verse 1, Now Samuel said to all Israel, they had all gathered together for the coronation of King Saul, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood until this day. Here I am. 
witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, whose donkey have I taken, whom have I cheated, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received a bribe with which to blind my eyes, I will restore it to you. In other words, he calls on the whole nation that he had traveled all through that nation and dealt with those people from the time of his, as a little child. And it tells us there toward the end of chapter three, after he had made his prophecy, the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground all the days of his life. And now he is able to stand before these people and say, what gain did I ever get from serving you? What profit did I make? What did I take from anyone unjustly? What bribe did I take? It's one of the reasons why when I set up basic training Bible ministries, I set it up to fail. I told God, I am willing to pour everything in my life into it, but I will never ask for a dime. I will never sell anything. Everything I do is going to be as free as the grace that you have given to me. We've never been in the red, because God's faithful. We don't serve to get rich. We don't serve for recognition. We don't serve for the praise of men. And Samuel was able, before that great assembly, to have them testify. And here's what they said. Verse four, they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness. Saul was standing there that you have not found anything in my hand. And the answer, he is witness. No one could bring a charge against him. That's how faithful he had been. And if you just drop down, to about, uh, well, let's pick up in verse 19. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking the king for ourselves. You see, Israel was under a theocracy. God was their king. And it was an affront to him for them to ask for a king. And Samuel explained to them, and you can read through 1 Samuel, and I encourage you to do it either over this weekend or in the week ahead. Read through the book of 1 Samuel and see the whole story and see the connections. But the amazing thing is, even when they affronted God by asking for a king and he gave them King Saul, you know what Samuel told them? Even now, if you'll be faithful, if you will serve the Lord, he will bless you and you will not be moved. And so they're asking his prayer for them. Pray for your servants to the Lord. Verse 20, then Samuel said to the people, do not fear, you have done all this wickedness, all of this wickedness you have done. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with your whole heart. That's what I just challenge you to do. You know, you may be here tonight and you may be carrying a very heavy burden. You may have a sorrowing heart. Do you know God's plan for healing things like that? When you're discouraged, when you're downcast, the best thing you can do is go find someone lower than you and pick them up. 
Find someone hurting more than you and give them comfort. Find someone who is hurting and give them a word of encouragement because that's God's plan for how we heal ourselves. If we become introverted, if we become focused only on what I'm going through, you know what? You get wrapped up in yourself and you make the smallest package in the world because it's all about you. And you know what you've done? You just became subjective. And when everything is about how it affects you, how it relates to you, you're blinded. You can no longer see truth. You can no longer even hear truth because your heart's hardened as it's wrapped up in your own life, your own issues, your own sorrows and sufferings. And you've hardened yourself to people all around you that are hurting worse than you, people that are going through more than you, people that have greater burdens than you have. We all need to open our eyes and we need to realize God brought us here at this time for a purpose. And I have a feeling there are going to be a lot of wounds and a lot of burdens that are going to have to be healed and dealt with in the days ahead. I believe that we are entering very dark and difficult times. If we're not, praise God, I was wrong. Come back next year, I'll tell you I was wrong. <laughs> you know, I got a call from a guy one time when I was at my first church. I think I may have told Bill this. And I picked up the phone and... Uh, I said, hello, and he said, uh, is this Pastor Cunningham? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, this is the prophet Elijah. <laughs> Elijah? He said, yes. He said, I'm on a mission to serve the Lord, and the Spirit of God told me that you would fund me on my way. <laughs> I said, you sure this is Elijah? <laughs> he said, yes, I'm the prophet Elijah. And I said, well... I have a problem. And he said, what's the problem? I said, well, the Spirit didn't tell me to do that. He said, well, no, of course. He spoke to me, the prophet, and told me to tell you that you're supposed to do this. I said, no, I don't think I will. He said, I'm going to call down a curse from heaven on you, and your ministry is going to be destroyed. Your people are going to leave you. And he said, in a short time, your church will be finished. I said, come back and see me next year. <laughs> So, if I'm wrong, come back and see me next year. Let's see. Verse 21, do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. I wonder how many of us have been pursuing nothing. How much of our lives has been wasted pursuing nothing? For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. I love this part in verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Do you people sitting here know how often your names are brought up before the throne of grace? Do you know that pastors, friends, family that know what you're going through constantly are lifting you up before the throne of grace? Do our kids ever realize as they go out into the world and make their own way, 
how many names, how many times their names are brought up before the throne of God's grace. How could we as past, uh, as uh, parents and how could we as grandparents sin against God by not praying for our children, our grandchildren? By the way, you sin against the Lord if you fail to pray for your pastor. Your pastor and his family should often be in your prayers. The people in your church, your gathering, whether it's a home gathering, a local church, those people should be often in your prayers. Samuel would not sin against the Lord. He said, I will teach you the good and the right way. We're going to talk about teaching later on. But he says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. And tragically, that's exactly what happened, as we're going to see uh, in our studies tomorrow. Samuel's entire life was a life of humble service. Samuel anointed Saul. He then anointed David as the first two kings. Saul, of course, became unfaithful. David remained faithful, obviously with some falls along the way. His ministry was a ministry of tremendous historical impact. Samuel is one of the truly unique men, and you can read these on your own. They're on page four under the fifth point. Samuel was a miracle child. His name given by Hannah means asked from the Lord. He was of the tribe of Levi. I don't know if you knew that he was of the priestly line. He was the last judge and the first prophet. He was the one to anoint the first two kings of Israel. He was a Nazarite. He held the last Passover until the time of Josiah. A faithful man, a dedicated man, an honorable man. He was a great prayer warrior. Read Psalm 99, verse 6, and Jeremiah 15, 1. They both held him in high regard as an example of what a prayer warrior is all about. If you'll just turn with me back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'll show you the contrast between the victor Samuel and his victim sons. First Samuel 8 says, It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. You say, why do you call them victims? Because people who follow that path always have an excuse. There's always an explanation. I didn't get the right chance. Circumstances didn't favor me. I didn't have the right upbringing. Nobody taught me, nobody told me. If only I had had the opportunities and the options that someone else had, my life would have been better. They were corrupted by greed, by self-centeredness, in contrast to the self-sacrificing ministry of their marvelous father. One of the primary requirements for those seeking positions of service in a church is given in 1 Timothy 3, 3, 
not covetous. Titus 1.7, not greedy for gain. We see a lot of that in the churches today. You know, if you'll only donate so much, the Lord is going to repay you ten times. And we see what happens. I was in a service one time where they, it was a very big group, probably a thousand people that were there. Uh, the offering was taken in five-gallon buckets. After they passed the buckets through and the guys that were passing the buckets took them back behind the curtain and they counted it out and they came out and spoke to the guy that was speaking and he said, I'm sorry, we haven't made enough. We're going to pass these buckets until we have enough. And I think they went around three different times. People kept digging deeper, digging deeper. That's not Christian giving. Let every man give as he determines in his own mind. Not grudgingly, not of necessity. Better to give a small amount cheerfully than to dig deep and resent the fact. You know, I used to, we used to take an offering at my first church, but I always told people before we gave it, number one, if you're here as a visitor, we ask that you not give because we have something we want to give to you. If you're a member of the church and you want to give, you give freely as you've determined in your own mind. And if you ever give an amount and regret it, come to me and I'll see that you get it back. Only had one person ever take me up on it. It was my son. <laughs> we had a missionary that came and gave a very stirring report of his work overseas. And I had given each of the boys $5 to do with as they chose. And he was moved by the message of the evangelist, put his $5 in the plate, and then his older brother, <clears throat> whose daughter's here tonight, said, you know, you could have bought two or three G.I. Joes with that money. <laughs> he came to me in my office and he said, uh, Dad, I said, yeah. He said, you know how you always tell people if they give and regret it, that you'll give it back? I said, yeah. He said, can I have my $5 back? <laughs> and I gave it to him. And years later, that was probably one of the biggest regrets that he had from that time. Think about Jesus in the upper room. We don't have a lot of time, but go to John 13. He demonstrates that sacrificial attitude to his ungrateful and unthankful disciples. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, just try to imagine what was on the mind of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus and I want to emphasize this word and I'll actually add it in a couple of places because it is implied. Jesus knew that his hour had come and he knew that he would depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. The word, the end there means to the uttermost. Notice verse three, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. 
Now shift from that glorious heavenly perspective to that upper room with those ragtag disciples where Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself, poured water into a basin and began to wash their feet. He took the place of the lowest slave. Can you imagine the times that there must, must have been disappointment when he was in the garden and asked them to pray with him and they fell asleep? That natural desire to have some support from somewhere. Do you realize that in the entire life of the Lord Jesus, everything he ever asked anyone to give him, he never got? You ever think about that? You never read of him asking someone to give him something that he ever got it. The woman at the well, give me a drink. He tells her he's the Messiah. She leaves her water pot and runs off into town. He didn't get a drink. He asks the disciples to pray with him. They fall asleep. He's there alone wrestling with angelic forces that we can't even comprehend. Sweating drops of blood. Don't worry, we're going to get to it. He hangs on the cross and he says, I thirst. What they give him? Gall and vinegar. Never once in his life do we ever see him receiving anything and he asked for so little. And here he is acting as the lowest slave and washing the feet of the disciples and there's so much in this passage that we could deal with but I just want you to get one point. Do you know why Jesus did what he did? Because he knew what he knew. Did you get that? Jesus did what he did in offering humble, sacrificial, self-effacing service because he knew what he knew. And what he knew made all the difference in the world. And therefore, starting with that precious passage in Romans chapter 8, where it says in verse 37, and I encourage you every time you're discouraged, read the last half of Romans chapter eight. But when it says, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, if you know it and really know it and know that you know it, you can humble yourself to the absolute lowest place and you will not feel diminished in the least. Let's think about it as we take a break. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Every wonderful, marvelous characteristic that the world admires is nothing but an expression of his character. Everything that's true, everything that's right, everything that's honorable, everything that we magnify and praise is nothing more than a reflection of the character of your Son and our Savior. So Father, as we take a break, just lay on us that burden that there's someone here who needs us. There's someone here we can comfort, someone here we can lift, someone we can simply speak a kind word to. So many people go through their day without ever hearing anything that is uplifting to them. 
Father, each and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is not only more than a conqueror, we are members of the royal family of God. And one day, we are going to reign and rule with him. So let us not think of that subjectively, how it relates to me. Let us think of it objectively, how it relates to those around us. And let us treat them as we always try at these conferences to treat those who come as members of the royal family of God. And we'll thank you and praise you for it forever. In Jesus' name, amen.